Good morning. My name is Jesse Wright. I'm the City Center Campus Pastor. It's good to be with you this morning. We've got our student ministry missions team has made it back as well. I've heard some amazing stories from their trip. Yeah, 83 of them. That's awesome. We are excited to have them back. I've heard just some, uh, some amazing stories from, from kind of their time there. It's been interesting for me because, you know, for the past 14 years, I've been the student ministry pastor here, and I've led those trips, and this year I didn't even go. It was weird. I was not in the student ministry, but I got to be here when the students came back, and I heard these, these stories of life change, and, and I saw some of their posts on social media about just talking about the, the week that they had and how their lives were changed, and just an incredible time there. And even, even amongst the team, there was, there was one young man who even, as a team member, became a Christ follower this week from that team there, so we were so excited for him. I, I saw some pictures, heard some stories. There, there was one night in particular, I was like, man, I just, I wish I would have been there. They, uh, they went to a softball game. There was a ministry they were working with, uh, with kind of an adult special needs softball game. They were doing some other things, invite them to the game. So all 83 of them made tons of signs and went and were just amazing fans at this softball game. Just a cool experience. A lot of cool pictures and stories coming from that trip. So I tell you that because students, if you are in here and you did not go, you need to make sure that this becomes a priority for you. It is a life-changing event. It is a wonderful time, and you need to make sure, no excuses, just make sure when the sign-ups start in a few months that you join that trip, get on that team, because it's just a great time to be there. Uh, also, I want to let you a little bit uh, about baptism. All right, August 18th, we have our outdoor baptism coming up. We're very excited about it. This year, it's a little bit different. We're actually going to have our outdoor baptism here at Park Avenue. Uh, we've moved it here because we think it's just going to be a great time of celebration. I have heard rumors, I cannot necessarily confirm if these are true, that in order just to celebrate, we're going to have some food trucks, uh, maybe some inflatables, and probably a dance party. Again, yeah, just rumors. I'll let Pastor Dave kind of be the one that lets you know more about that, but I just, I've heard these rumors. It may be good for you guys to know now. So, uh, I do want to take a moment and kind of let you know uh, what's going on in terms of why I'm here today. Certainly, we have a teaching team in our our team will teach occasionally up here as well, but Pastor Dave was, was scheduled to teach this weekend, both here and at Shelby, uh, but texted me yesterday and was just telling me he was feeling just very sick all of a sudden. It was just kind of getting progressively worse uh, and asked if I'd be willing to fill in. And so, of course, I said, yes, I would love to do so, but I, I want to take a minute and just kind of pray for Pastor Dave and his family as they continue to walk through just just some healing and trying to get better and just trying to fight some of this stuff. I, I know he wanted to be here so bad, so I know he's, he must be really sick in order for him not to be here today. So let, let's spend a moment, let's pray together, and then we'll dive in in just a second. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are. We are grateful that you are here our prayers. We are grateful that you are a God who not only hears our prayers, but, but you act, and you have the power to heal, and you have the power for comfort and peace. Lord, we know that you know things that we don't know. And we ask for just comfort and peace in that. Lord, we, we pray for the Vance family as they continue to just seek some answers. And, and as Pastor Dave is in some pain, just to take the pain away. And just to give him a sense of peace and comfort as he continues to seek after you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So one thing along with that, in terms of the transition from me teaching this weekend, you may have grabbed some notes on the way in this morning. These are Pastor Dave's notes. So one of the things that we could not get done in time was just reprinting all the programs. And so you're going to notice on here there are fill in the blanks. I don't have those answers. So <laughs> what you can do, as I'm sure Pastor Dave will come back to this at some point, but any of that white space, 
we're going to be taking notes. So if, if you are a note taker, utilize that white space, fill it up, do what you got to do. Just know that if it bothers you to not have the answers, I can't help you out yet. All right, so we're, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 is where we're going to be starting. And while you're flipping there, let me tell you a little bit of kind of what we're reading. We are reading a, a letter from Paul to the Gentiles. And in this group of Gentiles are really two different types of people. There are those that have kind of heard these instructions Paul's going to be giving in a second, but maybe needed that reminder, needed that encouragement, maybe just needed a little bit more to put it into their life. And then there were those that for the first time they were going to hear about what it means to really be a Christian, a true Christian. And so whatever category you fall in this morning, we're grateful you're here. We're grateful we can kind of be on this journey together and kind of learn and grow together this morning. So what we're going to be reading is what do you mean, or what does it mean to be a true Christian? How do you know that someone is truly a believer? Oftentimes in our culture, we look for uniforms or name tags, kind of identify someone's association with something. Just the other day, we had a family friend who went to the Chick-fil-A food truck in Mansfield. Anybody out there do the Chick-fil-A? Anybody wait in line for food for Chick-fil-A? All right, some of you. Excellent. So she went to the Chick-fil-A food truck, and she got there and waited in line for over two hours. Two hours. And to get to the front of the line, you begin to ask yourself, if you've been waiting in line, you begin to think of some of life's biggest questions. Will there be enough food for everyone that's currently in line? And so if you've waited for two hours, you begin to kind of think through, like, do I want to wait more? Do I want to waste more time if there's not enough food? And begin to think through some of these things. And so she thought to herself, you know, well, maybe if I could find a worker to just kind of let them know how much food do they really have left? How much, is there enough for everybody in line? And so you look for those distinguishing characteristics of a Chick-fil-A worker, but they're pretty much all in the truck. So maybe there'd be one walking around, she could just ask the question, hey, you have enough food for everybody? We're going to eat? We're going to have some Chick-fil-A today or no? And so she begins looking up and down the line and sees someone who's kind of walking against the line and, and well-dressed. You know, nice suit. Like, well, clearly that's like not what anybody else is doing. This, this person must work for Chick-fil-A. So she brings him over and asks the question, hey, do you work for Chick-fil-A? He said, no, I'm the mayor. Sometimes those looks can be deceiving. We can fall for those tricks of what it appears to be, right? It appears that someone is one thing, but they're not. And so Paul writes this letter to Rome and say, how do you really know if you are truly a believer, truly a Christ follower, a Christian? And we're going to read these 13 exhortations about what it means to be a Christ follower. But before we get into verse 9, I want to read to you Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because this kind of sets the foundation for understanding what it means to be a Christ follower. In Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul writes this to these people to let them know, listen, your life is to be a living sacrifice to God. If you are a believer, your life is God's life to use. 
and he gives these 13 different exhortations of what it means to really be a Christian. So we're gonna read through and then work through these 13 different things because what we're gonna find is some of these, as you kind of translate through different languages, and maybe even to our language and, and how the words are currently used, don't quite have the same meaning as the intent originally. So we'll work to find that out together. Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, and contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So as we work through these, we're going to see they kind of all build around the very first one. To let love be genuine. To let love be genuine. And if you look at the word genuine, it's interesting. It actually kind of translates to unhypocrisy. Right? The, the idea that you should treat someone the way you talk about someone. Talk about someone the way you treat someone. It is genuine love that exemplifies Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It is genuine love that has advanced the gospel. It was genuine love that people come to salvation. That love for us. This genuine love. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, this hypocrisy that is referenced actually goes back to verse three. So in Romans 12, three, it says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we see this hypocrisy about love is really this view of us. When you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think of yourself. Right, when you believe that your life is about you. And Paul is saying, listen, as a Christ follower, your life is to be a living sacrifice to God. And so we see that this contrast of this, this self-centered love up against this living sacrifice. And see, this hypocrisy is interesting, this hypocrisy of love. And there's really two ways you can see it. One would be you can pretend, you kind of put on a facade, a front, that yes, I, I love everyone, I, I care about people. But it's really just this front. that you, you don't really care, you just kind of put up this facade and your attitude's not in it, your heart's not in it, you just kind of fake your way through it. It's kind of the Instagram way of living. All right, Instagram is a social media platform in which you can take pictures of great things in your life. And many people will do that and they paint this picture of this perfect life that they have. And all you see is their, their perfect life. You don't see the flaws or the mistakes or anything, you just see this perfect life. And so for us, that's how sometimes people live their life. They just put up this front, and you really don't know their intent or their heart or their attitude. They just put up this front. I'll pretend to be nice to you, but deep down, I really don't care. The other way we see hypocrisy in love is when we use people instead of loving people. 
Right? You begin to kind of compare your flaws to someone else's. Well, my flaws are not as big as this person's. My flaws are not as bad as this person's. They don't happen as often. They don't have, and you begin to put this numerical value to your flaws in comparison to someone else. Not to show love, but to show that you are better than them. And so it's important for us to understand to let love be genuine. Number two is to abhor or hate what is evil. To abhor or hate what is evil. See, what happens if you do not hate what is evil, you begin to tolerate what is evil. You begin to permit what is evil. You begin to allow what is evil. You begin to have this in your life. And this is such kind of a, a big, somewhat generic term of evil. Let's, let's put a more specific word in. What if we put the word sin in? That we are to hate sin or abhor sin. Because if you don't, then you permit sin. You tolerate sin. You allow sin into your life. Let's, let's get even more specific. You know, in, in my work at the city center, we oftentimes encounter people who are struggling with some sort of drug addiction problem. Right, where they did not hate drugs for a period of time. They tolerated them. They permitted them. They allowed them. And now I, they're at a point in their life where they're addicted to them. And instead of hating what is evil, they dream about what is evil. They think about how can I get more of what is evil. Begin plotting and looking for different ways to obtain what is evil. Because if you do not hate what is evil, then you allow it. And when you allow it, it becomes part of your life. And it can consume you. I want to clarify here what we're saying here. The encouragement that Paul is giving is to hate what is evil or to abhor sin. Not to hate the sinner or to abhor the sinner. There is a difference, and in our culture, I think it's important to distinguish that there is a difference. That if someone is, is caught in sin, they do not need our hatred to remove them from the sin. If someone is caught in evil, they do not need hatred to remove them from the evil. Our job is to hate what is evil, to hate sin, not the sinner. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. When you understand who God is and what God has done, you will have this hatred of evil about you. It will change the way you view evil. That we need to abhor, to hate what is evil. So we are not distracted by evil temptations. Throughout scripture, time and time again, we are warned against temptations and sin to run and to flee and to get away from, to throw away all these different words that indicate the hatred that is behind the evil. But so often we don't. We tolerate, we permit, we allow. And it begins to infiltrate our lives and change the way that we think about things and how we function. Number three, is to hold fast to what is good. Almost the opposite. To hate what is evil, but to hold fast to what is good. And unfortunately, even though it's the opposite, we kind of flip what our job is. We kind of cling to that which is evil, allow these things to have a part in our life, let them kind of linger in our lives, and don't really let what is good infiltrate in. Think about the excuses we might use. Too busy, not enough time, couldn't find time to do it. That is a, a reveal of your priorities. 
And that is not holding fast to what is good. And what tends to happen is when you can't hold fast to what is good, you find yourself in situations where you don't know what is good. You don't know how to love in a genuine way. You don't know how to care for people. You don't know how to respond to difficult situations as a Christ follower, but you respond as a selfish person. And so Paul writes this as a reminder, hey, our job is to live a life that is sacrificial to God. We are to be a living sacrifice. And in order to do that, we have to hold fast to what is good. It is through God's word and prayer and the Holy Spirit that you will experience life change. Number four is to love one another with brotherly affection. Right? To care for one another. To sacrifice for one another. To encourage one another. Support one another. Now, I, I saw this video the other day, and I debated about showing it, but I, it, it takes a weird turn. Let me explain. I watched a video of a triathlon. All right, triathlon is a, like a one-and-a-half-kilometer swim, a 40-kilometer bike ride, and a 10-kilometer run. Really just an incredible physical feat to accomplish. And so there was this world triathlon competition. Some of the top triathletes in the world were competing. And in doing this, they were, they were racing together, but in the top three, there was a set of brothers in the top three throughout the world. Really just kind of an incredible feat in and of itself. But as you're watching this video, one of the brothers is in first place by a decent margin with about a quarter mile to go in the final event, final leg of the race. The other brother is kind of battling between second and third place, just kind of back and forth. They're close enough where it's just kind of back and forth. And you begin to watch the brother who's in first place. You see he's got a commanding lead. But he begins to just kind of get this blank expression on his face. Just kind of this, this uneasy look about him. He begins to kind of stumble and stagger a little bit. Nearly runs like directly into the crowd. And you can see that he's just kind of, you know, he's just physically fatigued, but emotionally fatigued, and his body's just kind of given up. And he's, he's trying to run, you know, his muscle memory's kicking in a little bit, but he just, like, mentally does not know what's going on right now. And so eventually his brother and the other competitor catch up to him. The other competitor goes on, finishes the race, but his brother grabs onto him, puts his arm around him, and kind of gets under his arm, and drags him the final quarter of the mile. And you can see in this video, you can see him kind of whispering and telling him, listen, we're going to be okay. We're going to do this. And gives him the support. Listen, here's where we are right now. We're close to the finish line. Kind of talking him through that. And if that is where the video stopped, they go, wow, what a great video. But they get to the finish line. Right before the finish line, the brother who's dragging him stops and just pushes his younger brother across the finish line. And then he crosses just after that. What an example of brotherly affection, right? To care for one another in such a way. Think about the examples we can see from that, right? Willing to, just, to sacrifice, right? This guy had a chance probably for first place. Willing to support. Not only is he just physically dragging, this is an exhausting event, but now he's physically dragging someone with him to finish it out and kind of carrying him across. But not only just carrying, you can see him telling someone, telling his brother, we're going to be okay. I got you. We're almost to the end. We're going to do this. Think about if this was the example, the reputation that we had of Christianity in our culture. That you found someone who was in need of support, in need of help, and you just came along and put your arm around and said, you know what, 
we're going to be okay. I know maybe you can't see the finish line right now, but I'm going to take you there. I know you, you, you may just be really hurting right now. It may be difficult, but know that I got you. We're going to do this together, and we're going to be okay. What if that was the reputation that Christianity had, of just this incredible support for one another? To love one another with brotherly affection. Number five is to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I am a competitive person, right? I enjoy playing sports with the caveat that if we're going to play something, we're going to keep score. There needs to be a winner. There needs to be a loser. We're going to compete. That's, that's why you do what you do. And so when I see something like the word outdo, to me, I almost read it, okay, like there's a challenge here. There's a competition here for me to outdo something. A few weeks ago when I, when I was speaking here, I mentioned my time in Cambodia. One of the verses, that was my second time in Cambodia, one of the verses that I always just kind of wrestle with when I'm there is this, to outdo one another in showing honor. Because the families that we serve are so good at showing honor when you're there. So good at showing that you have value to them. So good at showing that they care about you. They're so good at it. And for me, I often feel like I'm losing this competition because they're so good at showing honor. And they, they think of just little significant ways to let you know that there is value to you. When, when I was there, oftentimes I, I lead a soccer camp, and whether it's too much information or not, I sweat a lot, all right? In here, in this culture, I sweat a lot. So when I'm playing soccer in like 100 degree heat, I sweat a lot. And so we would walk back from the field to their house, and there'd be multiple students there with water bottles that would have been sitting in ice buckets. And before they would hand it to you, they would wipe it off to make sure that no condensation would get on you so you didn't get wet. The irony, right? But it, it's the thought of like, they want you to know that you are valued. And part, part of their kind of like living style there is they have a kind of a big gazebo and everybody just kind of sits around on the big gazebo. And so sometimes it's, a, it's just a different way of sitting, so your body's not quite used to it. And so I'm sitting there, and they can tell there's a little bit of discomfort, and they'll bring me a pillow. And I'm like, no, listen, you don't want all this on that pillow. Like, there's just, there's too much sweat to go. And, and they just insist, because they want you to know that you matter, that they value you. What if that was how we were distinguished? Right, that we, we would think of these ways to let people know, hey, I just want you to know you matter to God. I just want you to know you are a valued person. You have value to me. I want you to know that. And then the competition that we had, we were trying to outdo each other, and it's an incredible competition of, of back and forth, of trying to outdo one another and showing honor to others. What a competition that would be. Number six, do not be slothful in zeal. Now, slothful is an interesting word because in our culture, you hear the word slothful and you immediately associate with this weird little animal called a sloth. Now, I don't know much about sloths. I looked up a couple fun facts just to share with you. On average, sloths travel 41 yards a day. So by you walking in the church, you've already walked more than the sloth. They are the world's slowest mammal traveling at point point one five miles per hour point one five 
But the reason they move so slow, scientists and researchers believe, the reason sloths move so slow and so little is the fear of being attacked. Right? They, they live in this constant fear that if I go down there, if I get off this tree, if I have to move, something could happen. To the point of, again, too much information, they urinate once a week. Right? Could you imagine living in so much fear that you're afraid to eat, afraid to use the restroom, afraid to do anything, so you just sit there, hold on tight to your tree branch, and hope nothing happens? Right? It, that's the kind of the image of slothful, but it's, it's even worse than that. See, slothful for us, we immediately think to the animal. But if you go back to the original word, it's not only is it just kind of this sluggish movement, it's actually movement away from where you need to be going. We're just kind of slowly are backing up, like, you know what, I don't think this is really for me, and just kind of getting out of the way. And so we see this is the image of slothful, and then we see it says, do not be slothful in zeal. Now zeal, the Greek word spude, which means to quickly obey or to speedy diligence. You think, well, what, what does this have to do? How, how does this matter? Well, let me, let me tell you a story. The other day, I'm talking to one of my kids, one of my daughters, and I asked her, I gave her clear instruction, could you do this? I'm looking at her, she is not looking at me. I know she heard what I said, she has ears and I have a mouth. Scientifically, it's true. All right, so I'm looking at her, I get no response. So this time, I address her again, by name, a little bit louder. And she goes, huh? And so she had been using this tablet, was so ingrained into whatever she was doing on her tablet that she did not hear me or did not want to hear me. Right, maybe was just so distracted by what she was doing that she didn't really want to hear what I was saying. Now, it's easy to look at that example like, okay, well, there's clearly a distraction there and she, she didn't do what she's supposed to do. Great. But the same thing is true with us. Right? Sometimes we have this distraction in our life so we don't have to hear what God is telling us. Right? We, we have this distraction and says, ah, God, I, I know you're talking to me right now, but I would, I would rather not be a part of that. And part of it is the same fear. Well, what, what, if, what if I listen to what God says and then this were to happen to me? Right? Do, you, do you see the similarities of the sloth? The sloth lives in this constant state of fear. Well, what if I get down and something happens to me? What if, what if I actually hear what God says and something happens to me? What if I actually change the way I live my life and, and something happens to me? And so we see that you know, we, we have these distractions almost as a safety net so that we don't live with zeal, but we can have the slothfulness about us. One of the things I think is important for us to identify are what we would call zeal stealers. What is it in your life that you've allowed to be a distraction from what God is asking you to do? What is it in your life have you permitted to kind of let, let that be your safety net? Now, God may be asking you to do something, but, well, I've just, I've got this thing. I've, I'm, I didn't really hear what he said clearly. Could you repeat it? And we have the, the, these zeal stealers. Right? These things that just kind of put up this barrier that don't let us hear what God is saying for fear of what might happen. Number seven is to be fervent 
and spirit. Now, this is kind of a fun one. The word fervent is actually the Greek word zeo, and it's kind of this, this onomatopoeia-type word, which means it is the sound. It's supposed to be the sound of, like, boiling water overflowing out of the pan and hitting the fire. Kind of that, that, that's almost sizzling sound. And, and that's the image of, of the life that we should have, of just this kind of, your life is overflowing. Right? Your, your desire, your passion for Christ is overflowing and contagious. But unfortunately, many of us don't live with this, this fervent or the, this boiling water. It's more of a stagnant water. Right? You're, you're not really doing anything, not really adding value to anyone, not really encouraging anyone, not really have a purpose. You're just kind of there, sitting, existing. And in stagnant water, the longer you have stagnant water sit, the more bacteria and diseases it picks up. And then mosquitoes come, they transport those diseases, and then it just goes out of control from there. And so there's a danger in this stagnant water. And some of you maybe have been living in this season of life where you've just felt stagnant. I'm not doing anything. I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not adding value to anyone. I just feel stagnant. I feel like nothing is happening. And so maybe what you need is to some way rekindle that passion that you had for Christ. Or to find out what it really means to be a Christ follower. Now just because you get passionate about something is not going to immediately eliminate all of the problems of the stagnant water. But it will begin to work on those things. And it's important for us to kind of figure, what are we passionate about? What has God put in our life that we are passionate about that we can have value and purpose in our life? Number eight is to serve the Lord. Very simple instruction, simply to serve the Lord. The word serve is the Greek word doulos, which is for slave or slavery. Now, in our context, when we hear slave and slavery, we immediately think of a negative connotation, and, and rightfully so. Right? Historically, it has been a terrible thing. But for us to understand what is really being said here is really the attitude of submission. Right? Remember what Paul has referenced from the very beginning, that our life is to be a living sacrifice, that we are to give our life to God and say, God, here is my life. Do with it what you will. A living sacrifice. An attitude that says, God, here you go. I'm willing to give everything to you. Number nine is to rejoice in hope. That there should be something different about the way that you live your life. Right? Because you know there is hope for an eternal future. You know there is hope because you serve a God who is faithful, a God who is just, a God who is loving, a God who is who he says he is. He's not a hypocrite. There's no confusion. God is who he says he is. And because of that, you can find comfort and rejoice in that. And not just through song, but this is Paul's instructions, as a living sacrifice, as the way that you live your life. That you can rejoice in hope of what is to come. Number 10 is to be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Tribulation, in this sense, means to be crushed pressed, squeezed. And it's an interesting concept to think when you hear those terms that you are to be patient in that. To be patient in the pressing and the crushing. 
If you're taking notes, I want you to write something. I want you to write down a reference of Acts 16, 16. There is a story here where Paul is crushed, pressed, squeezed, persecuted, mocked, beaten, ridiculed, but he's patient in his tribulation. We don't have time to go into that story now, but he is patient in his tribulation. And because he is patient in his tribulation, it changes the lives of the prisoners around him. It changes the lives of the jailer that he works with. It changes the lives of the family of the jailer because he is patient in his tribulation. There is value in that, in being patient in your tribulation. Number 11 is to be constant in prayer. See, it is only through being constant in prayer that any of these are remarkably possible. Right? That you, you look at these things and say, it is only through prayer and God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit that there can be life change that will lead to these things. That if you are not constantly in God's word, constantly in prayer, your love will not be genuine. Right? That will not be your initial reaction. And so it is through these things of how life change happens through studying God's word, being constant in prayer, and the work of the Holy Spirit, that life change can happen for you. I want you to think about your prayer life for a second. And if you're taking notes, I want you to do something more. I want you to write down one word that would describe your prayer life. Just one word. Maybe, maybe the word is constant. Maybe it's, you know, kind of out there. Maybe, maybe your word is you know, kind of lacking or uncertain. You know, and so we kind of think about our, our prayer life. And how would you describe it? How would you describe your prayer life? Because if we're saying that the way that life change happens is through God's word, being constant in prayer in the Holy Spirit, and then we have a lacking prayer life, but expect life change? That equation doesn't quite add up. Number 12 is to contribute to the needs of the saints. Some versions of the Bible may, instead of contribute, it may say distribute. To distribute to the needs of the saints. Like what an interesting picture that you think about the resources that God has given, your time, your talents, your treasures, and that your job is to be the distributor of those things, to distribute those things to the needs of the people around you. But so often we are, we are not distributors. We're hoarders. Right? This is my life. I want my stuff, my talents, my treasures, my time. It's all for me. And we see there's just kind of this contrast with what Paul is saying. It's not your life. It's not about you. Your life was given to you as a way that you can glorify God, that you can be a living sacrifice. The final one, number 13, is to seek to show hospitality. I love the word for seek here. It's the Greek word dioko. And what this word means, it's a hunter chasing after its prey. And, and not just like a, a little hunt, but like the big one. The one you've been waiting for. I want you to think about kind of the preparation and the work and the thoughts that would go into that kind of a hunt. Just the planning of how you're going to do it. 
kind of dreaming about what that situation is going to look like and how that'll be a part of your life. And then understand how that word is used, not for us to catch an animal or to go hunting, but in fact, it says from to seek to show hospitality, that we should be hunting for ways to show hospitality to other people, hunting for ways to show other people that we care with the same sort of intent as a hunter would catching a giant prey. The same sort of thoughtfulness and plan and resources that it would take to do that. What if that was the reputation that Christianity had? That they were hunters for hospitality. Think about, it. Think about that in your home life. If that was the reputation of your home, the reputation of the church, the reputation of the community, the community were hunting for ways to show hospitality to one another. See, with all those examples, it starts with one person. It starts with you. Right, that in your home, what if you changed your home because you were hunting for ways to show hospitality to your family? Think about what the church would look like if everyone agreed that this is how we're going. We are going to hunt and seek for ways to show hospitality to other people, to show them how much we care. And to think about what it would be like if our community was the same way. If our community said, you know what, what if we all hunted for ways to show hospitality to one another, to show care and concern and genuine love for one another? What if that was the reputation of Christianity in our culture? Think about how lives might be changed from that. You know, the goal of today is not to make you feel guilty or that you're not good enough or you need to do more or anything along those lines. The goal of today is for you to understand what Paul is saying, that these 13 things have been done for you out of love in the life of Christ. That if you really want to be a follower of Christ, then look at the life of Christ. See, our culture paints kind of a different image of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you really want to be a follower of Christ, look at God's word. Look at the life of Christ. Look at what Paul is saying, and you will see this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And for you to understand that these things have been done as an example for you out of love. Would you close in prayer with me? Lord, we are grateful and thankful for who you are. Lord, we are grateful that you are who you say you are. That you are faithful and you are just and you are love. Lord, our prayer is that we understand these things and what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. That we can follow after you and the example that you set in front of us. Lord, we pray for those who may be hearing this for the first time. Lord, that they're hearing about what it truly means to be a Christ follower. And maybe they've had a skewed view or poor relationship of someone who claimed this and wasn't living these things out. Lord, we pray for those people to, to look to your life to see what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
We pray for those who maybe they've heard this before, but they've just been feeling kind of stagnant, not really doing anything. Lord, we pray that you, you give them a sense of passion about life and about you, that they have value, that they have a purpose, that you have given them this life to be a living sacrifice. Lord, we are thankful and we love you. And we pray, amen.